Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. For this episode, we have the pleasure of being joined by Chris, who also goes by the name of Zippy Capital. Chris is a private investor and writer and likes to delve into the small end of the market cap spectrum. In this episode, Chris talks about the types of companies he likes to invest in and his thesis for investing in two US listed microcaps. I really enjoyed listening to him and I think you will too. Before we begin, every so often we will be doing write-ups about stocks from around the world that have piqued our interest. These will mostly be companies on the small end of the market cap scale that go under the radar of most financial media. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, visit capitalemployed.substack.com and add your email to the list. That's capitalemployed.substack.com. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris. Hi, Chris. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Really appreciate it. Can you provide a brief introduction to yourself and, and what is your investing style? Sure. So I'm a private investor based in Chicago. Um, I work a full-time job in corporate finance and development for a privately held consumer goods company. So definitely consider myself a, a part-time investor. Say most of my family's net worth is in, uh, or a big chunk of my family's net worth is in index and, and mutual funds, but I do actively manage a portion of the total pie. And so uh, in terms of investing style in that in that bucket, I am, you know, biased toward growth investing, and will look across all market caps, um, primarily in the United States. Recently, though, I've been diving more into the micro cap uh, space, so I've been focusing mo- most of my efforts there. What type of businesses do you like to invest in? Are there any characteristics or situations that you seek? That's a good question. I mean, I don't have a strict checklist or anything like that, but uh, there are things and, and characteristics that I'm looking for. Uh, typically like to uh, invest in companies that are easy for me to understand. That means mostly avoiding biotechnology, healthcare, uh, energy, just areas where you know, as a part-time investor, I don't have the, the resources, the connections, the time to dive into these you know, more complicated industries, in my opinion, where I, don't, I just have, lack subject matter expertise. So uh, it's very important for me to focus my time on companies that are easy for me to understand or after, you know, a little bit of research, I can kind of grasp uh, the concept and the business model. So that's the first thing. I like to go uh, invest in founder-led companies or companies with high insider ownership. Just having that alignment with management is really important to me, especially in the micro cap space. Um, looking for companies that can grow revenues or earnings, you know, 20% or faster in the, for the foreseeable future. So I mentioned I'm you know, biased toward growth. Uh, from a value standpoint, I'm still uh, value conscious. And um, if there's a company where they're not growing 20% top line, but they there's operating leverage or some kind of inflection point um, where the bottom line can grow at an accelerated pace, that, that definitely gets me interested. I'm also looking for companies uh, that operate in industries or end markets that are growing faster than than U.S. GDP. So uh, that bar is t- generally not not too difficult, but I don't want to be in industries where, uh, you know, it's just kind of a, a slow dying death. And then I think the last uh, characteristic is, is that I'm, 
I want to invest in companies where I have so, some sort of access to either management or investor relations. And, and this is more applicable in the microcap space. But as a private investor, it can be difficult to get in contact with companies. So um, when I'm looking for microcap investments, if I can't get in contact with them or they don't want to talk to me, that it, it's going to be tough for me to make an investment just because I need that connection with IR at the very least to feel comfortable with the investment and also uh, kind of do that next layer of due diligence uh, before I invest. So kind of rambled on there, but those are uh, some of the things that I'm, I'm looking for uh, in the investments that I, that I make. And how concentrated do you get in your portfolio? How, how many stocks do you normally hold altogether? Yeah, I would say I'm relatively concentrated. Um, the, the top positions for me, I don't have in front of me, but uh, like probably the top five positions make up close to 50% of the portfolio, a little bit more than 50%. Um, but right now have like around 20 names, uh, reasonably concentrated, but I don't really like have a mandate or anything like that uh, to, to run very, you know, super concentrated. I think what it's just something I'm, I'm more comfortable in the, you know, 20, 25 stock range. And, and the, the amount of work I do on each name, you know, varies. Like I, you know, I'm holding Alphabet, a Microsoft, Taiwan Semiconductor, you know, mega cap companies where I'm not necessarily having to do a ton of maintenance work on. But you know, the micro cap investments I do have, that's where I focus most of my time. So it's about 20 holdings, but the time I spend is definitely more concentrated uh, than the portfolio, I guess. And how do you generate your investment ideas? Where do you find these micro caps? Yeah, I mean, I, I get my ideas from a wide variety of sources. The first is just, you know, real life, right? So if a friend or I use a product, uh, if someone comes across a product that's really interesting or service that's interesting, I'm, I'm just naturally curious to learn about it and, and learn about the business model. And then I always search, hey, is this, is this company publicly traded? I think I get a lot of maybe consumer ideas uh, that way. But then, you know, I'm looking at different online sites and forums, including Twitter, Microcap Club, Value Investors Club, Seeking Alpha, to get ideas on, on microcaps. And so a, a wide range of sources. I've also gone A to Z once on the OTC markets in the US, and that, got, that did result in one new uh, investment. But that's a pretty laborious task that I don't, you know, if I have time, I'll do it. But generally, um, I'm strapped for time. Can you talk about two stocks that you feel have great long-term potential? What was your thesis for investing? Sure. Um, the first one would be Delta Apparel. The ticker is DLA. It it's a, trades on the NYSE American in, in the United States with a market cap of uh, just over $200 million. So Delta Apparel is a vertically integrated apparel company that manufactures activewear and lifestyle apparel. You know, based on that description, doesn't really seem like a very exciting or sexy business. Uh, but, you know, when you peel the, the onion back a few layers, you quickly realize that Delta has two business segments that are quite differentiated and competitively advantaged. And they both have quite long runways for growth and, and pretty solid economics. The stock is currently trading less than 10 times forward PE, uh, which is, you know, a fraction of the mo market multiple. And I'm, you know, I believe that's a pretty big mispricing based on the prospect for these two kind of growth segments I mentioned. I'll talk a little bit 
you know about the segments. Uh, the first is DTG to go, which is a digital garment printing business. And I know you had a guest on, I think a few weeks ago, who uh, was pitching Cornet, uh, K-R-N-T. Cornet manufactures a lot of these digital printing machines. And so Delta Apparel is one of Cornet's customers, but they also buy machines from other other manufacturers. So they're you know a lot of the same things your guest said about the sustainability um, and all those kind of industry tailwinds that Cornet benefits from. I believe this DG, DTG to go segment for, for Delta, uh, they also benefit from uh, growing very fast, you know, 20% plus with a 20% plus EBITDA margin. Uh, so that's one very exciting segment. And then the second one is Salt Life, which is a lifestyle brand. Uh, it's really popular in Southeast uh, United States, kind of geared toward you know, people that enjoy the outdoors, fishing and things like that. So they've focused in wholesale primarily in the past for this business, but they're they're rapidly building out their store count and their stores have a great kind of ROIC uh, and, and they're also building out their e-commerce. So it's pretty early for this brand that's already has quite a strong brand equity, especially in the, in the Southeast uh, of the States. The, the thesis is basically that these two uh, exciting segments, DTG to go and Salt Life, uh, they're going to make up close to 50% of the sales in five years, right? And so what's going to happen is this Delta Apparel as a company uh, is going to benefit from that mixed shift from a more, you know, commoditized business and their legacy kind of apparel manufacturing uh, into these higher growth, higher margin uh, segments like digital garment printing and Salt Life, which is a, a brand name. All that should result in higher profitability, better return on capital, and then a, also a wider kind of long-term moat. And, you know, I put all those things together that should justify some, some multiple expansion as well as earnings growth in the next five years. So uh, from a big picture, I mean, we can get into some of the details if you have questions. From a big picture, that's the thesis for Delta Apparel. It sounds really interesting. It's, uh, the valuation looks very enticing. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's trading at its um, some of its, its lowest points in um, when you look at it from a five year basis. I think th- I think there's a couple things going on. I think first of all, they you know, activewear got a boost from from COVID, right? Because you know, people are at home, they stopped buying kind of luxury or work uh, apparel, and they focused on. Um, buying, you know, athleisure and activewear. So they, they definitely benefited from that. And I think the market's probably thinking the business might slow down a bit. And then obviously the, the stimulus, a lot of its consumers had a lot more money to spend on durable goods. I think we're seeing a shift from goods to services. So I think there are some good reasons um, for people to maybe look at this name a little bit more skeptically. You know, they're putting out fantastic results. 15 to 20% growth this year, expecting the top line. You know, there are some macro headwinds, but the company's executing very well. And one thing I didn't mention too on the kind of the tailwinds in the industry is that Delta Apparel's uh, manufacturing footprint is in the United, uh, in the, in North America, in Central America, as well as um, uh, distribution and, and some manufacturing in the United States. So there is a trend of nearshoring, which is basically companies deciding to move operations and suppliers from, you know, Asia, Bangladesh over to uh, somewhere closer to the, to their end consumer. And so 
Delta will definitely benefit from that because they are unique in their position in the market where they are vertically integrated and they're based in in North America. And that's something that differentiates themselves from their competitors. Thanks, Chris, for sharing that one. And what about the second stock you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so second one, uh, quite different. The name of the company is Table Track. The ticker is TBTC. And this is a $15 million company that trades on the highest tier of the OTC markets in the United States. And the company sells casino management system software, or CMS, uh, and services to casinos. Every casino basically needs a management system uh, to ensure proper audit, uh, accounting practices, reporting to the government, but they also use it to manage, you know, monitor real-time performance of how the their tables and their machines are doing. They use it to manage loyalty programs, different business analytics. So every casino will have a CMS or casino management system. TableTrack is a founder-led company that offers this CMS software to casinos. Its target customers are traditionally smaller regional casinos and also tribal casinos in the United States. This industry is dominated by kind of four main players and uh, they're four, the four large casino game machine manufacturers. And, you know, these game manufacturers kind of offer the CMS software uh, to their clients as an add-on, right? So you buy the machines from these manufacturers. They also say, hey, we have the software as well. TableTrack is one of the few that maybe only options, I think, outside of the big four, these big four manufacturers uh, that has approval from multiple gaming commissions in the United States to sell their their software. In the total industry, they they have a small market share, but they're definitely an underdog that is starting to get noticed by the big four, gaining share organically. You know, why am I investing in this company? My thesis is three main points. First of all, the core product they have is really good. Uh, and I'm not an end user of casino management software, so I did spend a lot of time talking to experts in the space, talking to former employees, different casino operators who do use their product and also have experience with other competing products. And the the feedback I got was that, the hey, the technology is really solid. What they offer uh, in terms of functionality and cybersecurity is really strong. And it's also very cost effective compared to other options in the marketplace. It was a little confused because this company, I mean, there's a handful of people doing R&D, right? Versus some of these big game manufacturers, hundreds, thousands of uh, engineers working there. And I was quite surprised to hear the feedback I got, but essentially people were telling me the CEO who's the founder, he's also the CTO and and multiple people I've talked to describe him as a genius. <laughs> uh, so he's got a lot of horsepower. You know, they've gotten multiple patents on their software and they've also rolled out new features that kind of helped casinos adapt to the pandemic quicker than their their competitors. And they got a patent on on that as well. In terms of the the actual software itself, it's it's very good. Second point would be that companies are quite a attractive business model, in my opinion. It's it's not quite you know SaaS software as a service, but it's pretty close. Uh, so basically, every time they install a machine, they'll generate you know one time sales revenue, right? 
but for every month the casino has the is using the software they're also paying table track a monthly maintenance fee and so I, I say it's not SaaS because it does installing the software system doesn't does require you know on-premise servers and some uh techs coming out there to install the software like you know you got to put some gadgets in the you know every slot machine for example but it's similar to SaaS in the fact that they're generating a lot of high margin recurring revenues, which which is great. In a big picture as a total company, their gross margins are over 75%, but the monthly maintenance revenues actually are uh, much higher than that. And they continue to grow because TableTrack's adding customers uh, every quarter and that the maintenance revenue just continues to grow at a very, very high margin. Uh, so lastly, uh, and this is the part that gets me the most excited, is that traditionally the biggest cost uh, has been uh, SGNA, and it's mostly fixed in the terms of in terms of uh, compensation. But they should be hitting a point soon where their monthly recurring revenues from the maintenance contracts will exceed their total SGNA expense, right? And so once that happens. We should see a lot of operating leverage come through in the PL. Once that does occur, uh, hopefully soon. Pro- I thought it might happen this year, but it looks like maybe next year. Um, I think a lot of uh, the gross margin is going to drop to the bottom line. I think the company is probably going to generate record, record EBITDA, record uh, net income. And I mean, even if there's no multiple expansion, I think uh, the stock will charge ahead higher. Do they um, offer support and maintenance to um, casinos outside the United States as well? Yeah, good question. They have a deal uh, with a another party in Australia where they're, that third party is installing their software into Australian gaming locations. So I'm not super familiar with Australia, but I know uh, people there like to gamble and play uh, the slots. And so, and, and a lot of times they're not like at, these slots machines are not at big casinos, they're at, you know, smaller venues. And so they leverage a third party there to install their software. And that, that's also, a, the margin structure is quite, quite good on that too. So it's not a margin diluted business. They also have some business in the Caribbean. And then they also have a deal with a security company in Japan uh, to potentially be kind of the de facto standard CMS software for casinos in Japan. So Japan is kind of one of the big markets that hasn't legalized uh, gambling. Casino uh, companies are in the process of bidding for the right to build casinos there. But uh, it's possible that that table track system could be the standard system there for CMS uh, based on a partnership they forged a few years ago. So um, there's some you know, I guess optionality there, but uh, yeah, most of the revenues are generate, generated in the United States, mostly tribal casinos, but uh, they're expanding and kind of upgrading their client roster and the bigger casinos in the U.S. And then they also have some ancillary uh, revenues outside the U.S. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Chris, for sharing that company. So where can listeners go to find out more information about you? So the best place is probably just Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Zippy underscore capital, Z-I-P-P-I, sorry, Z-I-P-P-Y underscore C-A-P-I-T-A-L. Chris, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. 
It's been a pleasure to listen to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.